Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Doug Ford's government is going to scrap hydro rate protections, which could affect 325,000 Ontarians. Meanwhile, Premier Ford also doubles down on his claims that carbon taxes will cause a recession. And Donald Trump and his allies are getting concerned about Rudy Giuliani's media interviews. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots to talk about with the Ontario government. And uh, therein lies the concern, I think, with an awful lot of people here uh, about exactly what's going to happen with some of the uh, the policies uh, enacted and, and at least talked about by the Ford government. We talked about Bill 66 uh, earlier in the week uh, and the debate that was going on. And we've, we've tried to get as, as much information as we can about this so you can make informed decisions. But there are a couple of things that are happening that, uh, that we are a little concerned about. Uh, and, and therein lies the concern about hydro rates. Now, you may remember uh, a couple of years ago, we carried far too many stories uh, about people that basically were having their hydro shut off because they couldn't afford to pay the bills, right? And it was, it was disgusting. I mean, it wasn't just one or two stories. There seemed to be more and more. And it wasn't just in remote rural areas. It was happening even in urban areas in the city. So the, uh, the wind government at the time decided to enact a few policies to try to do something about it and try to cap hydro rates or at least control hydro rates. And, and we can have the debate about whether or not you think it was a good idea. And I know the Auditor General certainly didn't like it uh, because they kept artificially low rates. And uh, there was some concern about the impact that that was going to have. But they also put some protections in there to try to keep a cap on rates so that it would at least be affordable. Well, that's uh, going to be scrapped. Uh, that's another announcement. Uh, the Ford government is now is going to scrap rate protection when it comes to hydro. For this is for low income earners. Uh, it's it's not as if you know people that are living in seven hundred hundred thousand dollar homes uh, would qualify for this, but it could affect affect rather about three hundred twenty five thousand Ontarians. Uh, Sub metering uh, Council of Ontario uh, has responded to a global news story yesterday by saying that look, at Bill sixty six is going to help lower costs. But what it does is it takes the cap off there, and a lot of people that are using this program right now are concerned that with no cap, that these rates could rise, and nobody can do much about it. It's it's anytime you start talking about hydro and and the generation of hydro and the and the purchase of hydro, and ultimately what you and I as consumers have to pay, it just becomes a quagmire, and it's very very difficult to to weed through this and find out uh, exactly what the truth is. So we're going to approach this from a couple of different angles. I want to bring Parker Glant into the uh, discussion, uh, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario, who's been a, uh, a vocal uh, critic of some of the policies of the previous government and obviously very cautious about uh, this government moving forward. Parker, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. You've heard both sides of this argument here. That Look, at if, if you take these restrictions off, uh, hydro rates could skyrocket again. Consumers are going to get a pain in the neck, and you're going to have people that are going to have their power shut off again. Is 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 that fear mongering, or is there an element of truth to that? No, I think it's more fear mongering. I mean, um, the response from the Sub Metering Association or whatever it is, um, I think reflects the fact that uh, this is something that came in during you know the previous government. They brought in sub metering. They said, oh, if a new apartment building is going to be erected or a condo going up, we want each and every tenant to have a meter that tells them how much electricity they're going to use. And the object was to get people to conserve, right? I mean, you sure. don't want to have uh, every light on in your condo or every light on in your apartment and, and uh, you know, not recognize that, that you could be saving some money for 
the apartment owner or the condo owner yourself. So that was the intent. So I think it's been probably eight or nine years now since that um, that regulation came into uh, force. And was it working? Oh, I presume it's working. I mean, we have been reducing our our uh, consumption, so we are. But we have been conserving, and I, you know, I presume a condo owner is the same. A condo owner would be in the same uh, group as as somebody that owns a house. You know, if you see your hydro bills going up, you want to do what you can to reduce them. Mm-hmm. So you do turn off the lights, or you change the light bulbs to LEDs, or you know, you turn your thermostat down, whatever. Um, so that's you know a regulation, as I said, that came into force, and a requirement for the building industry. Uh, you know, that was putting up multi- multiple units. Um, and uh, you know, I've I've had uh, some friends that we visited and own a condo in downtown Toronto, and they moved to, a, they had moved to this new, fairly new condo, and he took me around and showed me down in the basement, and each and every condo unit has a submeter. Now the submeters, of course, uh, will only charge the, the the condo owner. I mean, the individual owner, I should say, of that unit. Of that unit, yeah. Right, but someone's got to pay the lights for the front of the building and all the other other electricity stuff. So that's the, the responsibility of the the group that, if you will, manages the unit itself, right? So these were additional expenses. So, I mean, meters aren't cheap. And as we know, you know, anybody that owns a home and has been paying their bills for a long time, we've been paying for, you know, we're paying for smart meters. It's head in the regulatory charge of your bill. So we've been paying for those charges. Same thing with with the um, the people that own the condo or rent an apartment. They have to pay for that as well. So they're paying for it. But I think what has also happened was the OEB considered the fact that Oh, sub-metering companies, because what happened was, um, you know, someone that is managing a realty, you know, property manager, if you will, maybe the one that goes out and contracts for these sub-meters, you know, to get the installation done and to amortize the cost, to sign the contract over a period of time, that sort of thing. Or it may be the, you know, the apartment owner or the condo uh, group itself, uh, that would go out and contract with these submeters. So what that means is that uh, you know what what the OEB was basically looking at was we're going to monitor these submetering groups to make sure that they're you know kind of in compliance on all sort of charges near the same rate. Um, and it, it, um, that that's been look, being looked at had been looked at for about a year and was supposed to come into vogue. Just before the election, believe it or not, that they were going to, you know, make a decision as to whether or not they wanted to uh, carry on um, with this and get these but, submetering companies to actually apply for, you know, rates. Um, and that was they, that was the, bad timing. Yeah, <laughs> these submetering companies are all licensed, so they have to apply for a license. So if you're a realty company and you set up a, a separate, you know, group within your, you know, a subsidiary company to manage that part of it because you've got, you own five or six buildings, you would have to uh, register each each one. You you have to go and register and apply for a license with the OEB. They'd get, grant you your license for 200 bucks or 1,000 bucks or whatever. So you're adding to the cost of, of building the units, if you will. And um, that's really, I think, what this is about. I think 
you know, the announcement by the Ford government was that we're going to reduce regulations. This is one of the tiny ones that, you know, people felt might affect them. Okay, but there's a, there's a, another side to this, and, and that's a, on a philosophical level I can understand that. And by the way, there's a question. That I just got an email, Parker, as you were explaining that, uh, from one of our listeners. Uh, how do you know that the tenants aren't getting gouged by this? In other words, they're paying for what, or whatever their own meter says, but how do we know that, uh, that the landlord is not charging through rent or through condo fees enough money to be able to cover the hydro bill that they have for the rest of the building? Well, you don't know. You don't know what he's charging rent for, right? I mean, in the past, without the submeters, they would include what they estimated to be the cost of the electricity, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so we never knew back then. Now we got, you know, submeters that actually tell us what we're consuming. You're only going to be billed for the usage that you have recorded on your meter. And, you know, we're, we're hoping that the meters are, are correct and that they're reading things properly. Um, so you should only be billed for the electricity you're actually using. No, I know, but that's on your hydro bill. But what I'm saying is if you're a condo owner, for instance, you pay condo fees every month. Yes, uh, I know. How, do, I mean, we, how do we know that the, 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 the people that are you're collecting in those condo fees aren't saying, okay, your condo fees just went up because we have to pay for this hydro now? Yeah, but, uh, you know, most, I mean, condos are, you know, run differently than, say, apartments uh, because there's different owners. But condos, the, the group that run a, a condo unit usually are, you know, individual owners of the condos within, you know, individual condos within that condo, that multi-unit multi, multi uh, building, right? So it's usually people that, if you will, are paying those bills that are meeting together and deciding who they should contract with for... It's just, know, I think, I think what, what the uh, listener is asking for is, uh, I guess, more transparency. Listen, in the, 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 you did explain this very clearly to us, and that's good. Uh, and I got what the, the government's trying to do here with Bill 66. But right at the end of it is their explanation. Uh, the government spokesman says that uh, once we eliminate all this red tape, we hope the board will eliminate unnecessary costs to our customers. There's no guarantee that's going to happen. Well, um, you know, Hopefully, the board, the Ontario Energy Board, will say, "Oh, well, yeah, it is going to raise costs, so we will not require this in the in the in the future." But I mean, the other thing that's happened, of course, is if you were a builder of an apartment building, you you might say, "I don't want to get into this." So there have been companies that have been formed that will basically, you know, electric companies that will go and install the submeters and will contract and finance those meters over, you know, a period of time, depending on, on you know, what the contract is, is, uh, contains in terms of both payments and time. But the unit itself, I mean, the, you know, the, the meter is not, shouldn't drive up your electric, electricity bills. You're still going to get charged the same rate. You know, if you're, uh, you're living in an apartment in, uh, in Toronto um, or, or Hamilton, you know, it's going to be Electra in your case, and it's going to be uh, Toronto Hydro in the case of somebody living in Toronto. They're not going to charge any more for their regular, you know, uh, distribution costs or for the price of electricity. The only additional charge will be for that meter. And obviously paying for that meter over time, um, uh, you know, is is going to be should be the same as paying for the meter that you would have been charged for if you lived in a house, right? You're being yeah. you're being charged for that now. It's in that regulatory part of your bill if you're living in a house. If you live in a condo, it's in that sub metering costs. 
So it's just a question of, I mean, I don't, you know, I think literally it should be pennies. The other thing this doesn't do, which I think the article sort of implied it would, was prevent people from, you know, applying for the Ontario Electricity Support Program or under the LEAP program, yeah. low-income uh, program. It won't do anything of that sort at all. There will still be, you know, that those services will still be available, if you will, to help reduce the bills. So then the, the the concerns that we've heard from, uh, from for instance, poverty advocates here, that this is uh, when you take a ceiling off, that uh, things could skyrocket here, you feel is unfounded. But I guess that the only concern here is that with some of the policies, and I think this one falls into the same situation as when he said he was going to arbitrarily reduce the price of gasoline to the pumps, and said, I hope that people pass it on to the consumers. There's no guarantee that's going to happen. And in a lot of the cases, we know it doesn't. Now, they, we, we don't know yet. This is a relatively new policy. And I know people don't like too much regulation, Parker. I think that's pretty common right across the province. But at the same time, uh, there's always that fear that in the absence of regulations, you've got a Wild West show where people can do pretty much what they want. That's that's entirely true. But, I mean, the price of the electricity is regulated, right? Because every distributor and, and the price of distributing that electricity is also regulated. So there has to be... If you will, the generators have to apply for any rate increases by yeah. the OEB still, as do the distributors for any local you know, uh, additional increases. So that hasn't changed. It's just, as I said, removing you know, a kind of pretty small item from the, from the uh, whole OEB overseer you know, process. Well, we'll see just how it's going to impact yeah, bills. I Obviously, as, as you and I have talked about in the past, if you really want to reduce hydro rates here, uh, boy, they got a lot more to do than this. This is a, There's bigger fish to oh, fry, aren't there? Definitely bigger <laughs> fish, I'll tell you that. Barker, thanks as always. I really appreciate your uh, help on this one today. Well, thank you for having me, though. Take care. We'll talk okay. again. Parker Glenn, of course, uh, was uh, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. Uh, interesting take on this and, and some legitimate concerns. And, and I understand exactly what you're saying. When governments take restrictions away, uh, it's kind of almost like a trickle-down economy theory that, you know what, we'll, we'll take all the red tape away from this and reduce the cost of the people that are supplying this, and we sh- we're sure they'll pass that on to the consumers. Well, how often does that really happen? Hmm? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the other big stories uh, emanating from uh, the government of Queen's Park, of course, was uh, earlier this week when uh, Premier Doug Ford spoke to the Economic Club in downtown Toronto. And, uh, well, first of all, we knew right off the bat that this, uh, Ford's got a real problem with uh, the carbon tax that uh, the federal government is, uh, is rolling out right now. Uh, and the Premier actually went on to say that uh, if uh, the carbon tax rolls out as anticipated, uh, that it will cause a, not just an economic downturn, but he called it an econ- a carbon tax recession that will hit this country. And it costs quite a bit of ways, but uh, he is sticking to his guns. I can tell you that a carbon tax will be a total economic disaster, not only for our province, but for our entire country. And there are already economic warning signs on the horizon. Uh, when asked what those signs were, uh, there was no reply from the Premier. Uh, when asked to justify some of the statistics, uh, he did not talk to reporters. I uh, did cause a lot of pushback. A number of economists, almost from coast to coast, have responded to this. Uh, Mike Moffat from Western University was on the program yesterday talking about this, uh, basically suggesting that there's absolutely no credibility to what Ford is saying. As a matter of fact, there's strong evidence to the contrary. So uh, is, is this politician versus economic, economic expert, or is this politician versus the truth? It's an interesting debate.
Joining us to talk about this is Steve Applin, publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2 carbon dioxide emissions for energy use. Uh, Steve, thanks so much. Great to have you back on the program today. Great to be here, Bill. Uh, this is not the first time uh, that uh, Doug Ford has created controversy with some of his comments and some of his assertions, uh, but he's certainly got the ire of an awful lot of economists with it. He sure does. It's it's funny, the comeback that they've had, and uh, the comeback is um, the it won't cause a recession. So let's have a carbon tax because it won't cause a recession. So you've got hyperbole on both sides, I think. Well, yeah, except that when I, I, I did talk to Mike, Mike my from Western yesterday on the program, and he was he was quite adamant about this, saying, look, at, not only will it not cause a recession, but he says there's, there's statistics here, empirical evidence, uh, in places like British Columbia and, and Sweden, and, well, as he went on to say, seven of the top ten G20 nations, the top performing economies, all have some form of carbon tax. So he says there's a body of evidence out there that says it actually can be a net benefit. And, and, and he accuses Doug Ford of only looking at one side of the equation. Well, that's, uh, I guess you could make an argument that that is the case. But again, the, the carbon tax proponents, uh, they've come right out of the woodwork. They're not happy with what uh, Ford has said about the carbon tax. But their comeback is, is not that uh, strong either, uh, Bill. I've mentioned that, that uh, they're, you know, most of them are, are, are not going as far as Mike Moffat saying there's actually going to be benefit. Most of them are just saying it's not going to have the, you know, it's going to have a, uh, a $3 billion uh, the, the economy will grow three, $3 billion less than if we didn't have it. Uh, that's a pretty weak recommendation. This is supposed to achieve deep cuts. British Columbia, you know, between 2008 and 2000 and, and last year, uh, gasoline use went up. It, it, it inched up. Diesel use inched up. The carbon tax that was brought in 2008 was supposed to decrease that. And now the carbon tax proponents are pointing this as an example of a successful carbon tax in saying that the rate of increase was not as not what it would have been that's not what we need in in this uh, climate change debate we need deep significant million dollar cuts uh, annually and and to have a uh, to have carbonaceous fuel use go up as after a carbon tax means that the carbon tax is not working this is you know that was 2008 we're 2019 now well, yeah, but the the government's argument on this, I'm just playing, you know, a devil's advocate here, is they're saying, look, at, we will increase it exponentially, but it, we, we don't want to start off with that high. But you're suggesting that maybe they, they go all hog on this right off the top? Well, I mean, they either do, you've got the Joel Harden view. Uh, Joel Harden is uh, my MPP here in Ottawa Centre. Uh, he's, uh, he's advocating a $150 carbon tax. Well, that's getting into the neighborhood of what of the carbon price that you would need in order to dissuade use of uh, in places where they've got the where they've got the option, mind you, in places like Ontario, for example, uh, that's getting close to what you need in order to dissuade carbonaceous fuel use and use electricity instead because our electricity is quite clean in Ontario. Uh, and I'll also remind uh, our viewers or our listeners that this is that the. Uh, Emission reduction in in Ontario, the cleanliness of our electricity had nothing to do with a carbon tax. It was just a technological switch from coal to nuclear. Uh, a $150 ton is getting close to what we're talking about, and no politician is going to go anywhere close to this. No, if they want to get reelected. <laughs> if they want to get reelected, that's right. So, so the what we've got is we've got the battle of the hyperbole. We've got uh, we've got the premier saying something quite uh, dramatic. It's going to cause a recession. And the uh, proponents of the carbon tax saying 
No, it won't cause a recession. I, I don't know who's got the stronger or who's got the weaker argument in this case. Well, the only argument that Ford's people put forth, and this was, I guess, after they had a few minutes to sit down in a room and say, what are we going to say about this? Because he, he didn't seem to have any defense for it. Uh, is they, uh, they referenced a, uh, a Conference Board of Canada report uh, that said that there was going to be a dramatic uh, impact on, uh, on the Canadian economy uh, if the carbon tax went up. And, and I'm sure you saw this uh, as, yeah. as a result, Steve, that uh, one of the people that actually wrote this report uh, weighed in on this, uh, one Robin Gibbert, uh, who identified himself as one of the authors of that conference board report and says, at no point did we say the carbon tax would cause a recession. We specifically described the overall economic impact as small. Uh, yeah. and, and as you mentioned, I mean, you know, the Ford government talked about the number of dollars that may be impacted, but uh, when you, the economists weighed in on this, they said that's less than 1% of the GDP. So what's the big deal? Um, you know, in other words, you could, you, that, anything could cause something like that. That's that's right. That's but the right. other the other side of this, and we're, we're really we're arguing on the same side here. We're just talking about how extreme we want to get on this. Is what Ford fails to do, and Jason Kenney and everybody else that's saying let's not do this at all. Is the other side of that is that money that that's being paid in carbon tax doesn't disappear. That's going back into the economy. That's going back in to people's pockets in some cases, or to go to infrastructure projects. And I mean that that's an element of the economy that nobody seems to want to talk about. Well, that's right. The, and, but, but once again, and this may be what uh, the Premier is getting at, although he didn't articulate it, uh, the, if it goes back into infrastructure projects, then the question becomes, which infrastructure projects? He pulled out of the cap-and-trade system with California. I've always applauded that move because California is going off and doing these cockamamie green things, uh, such as this battery project that it's got at one of its old gas plants. The battery project is, is you know $200 million for a battery, that's going to give you four hours worth of production at a at a you know 187 or 182 megawatts. That's not going to reduce anything. It's not going to store solar energy, and it's not going to reduce uh, CO2. This is and and cap and trade proceeds went into that. So if we have so, some cap and trade proceeds did some cap and trade. That's right. It wasn't fully funded, and we're going to and it's this is all going to come out in the wash. By the way, because we're going to see. What, because this is not an economical project. This is a government-funded project, and that I'm pretty sure that cap and trade proceeds will go into that. And if that is the case, uh, there's then the debate is well, what infrastructure projects do the proceeds go into? And it becomes all political. It, it, we we can't escape the fact that this is going to get political somewhere down the line. Everything does, though. Right? I that, mean, that, that's, that, right. that's a fait accompli. We know that, Steve. I mean, and, and to your point, I mean, I, I can give you a local example. I'm sure it's it's the same thing in Ottawa. Uh, the previous government, and, and let's face it, they had their long list of shortcomings. But some of the revenue from cap and trade, from the from those carbon for those purchases, those credits that they bought, uh, was being already directed towards well, cities like Hamilton for infrastructure repairs and social housing and school board repairs for some dilapidated old schools. That money all of a sudden evaporated the day that he killed cap and trade, and it sent school boards and and city councils all over the province scrambling. Said we were budgeting for this money, now all of a sudden it's not there. We can't fix our infrastructure. I I understand that, and if if there's a if there are infrastructure projects, they should be funded from some infrastructure fund, not from cap and trade. But there isn't they, one. That's the problem. Well, then 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 create one. It's just that that if if. This is, if that's what cap and trade proceeds are supposed to go to, then that's not the, pro, the that's not the uh, purpose of that fund. The purpose of that fund is to buy down CO two emissions, not to cover infrastructure. Infrastructure is needed, and in, if infrastructure is needed, surely a government can summon the political will and the and the support in order to 
find it because, I mean, these are schools. I Listen, I totally agree with you, but I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for it to happen because the mantra of this government so far, the Ford government, has been to tear things apart, not to put extra funding into into projects. So uh, I, I, the cities right now are doing their budgets. Ottawa's doing theirs. Hamilton's doing theirs. Yep. And, and there, there's no money coming. And the government has made no indication that there is going to be a fund. I wish there were because most of the other G8 nations, every other G8 nation, as a matter of fact, has exactly what you have described. They have a, 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 a fully funded, ongoing infrastructure fund so that you don't have to start borrowing from other programs to start putting into this. We don't do that in Canada, and we certainly don't do it in Ontario. No, we, we do it on this ad hoc basis, and, and it all becomes, like I said, it, it becomes politicized. If, if, if there were a proper fund that, that covered stuff that has to get covered, uh, we wouldn't be having the discussion. But the, and, and if, you know, this is, this is a, again, the weakness of the, of the carbon price approach is if you're going to divert money into stuff like that, well, then the people who claim that this is nothing but a tax grab are halfway vindicated. But, which is one of the arguments against cap and trade. But the, the, the pricing program the federal government's put in, uh, if you're to believe what they're saying here, is that the money goes back into, well, it can either go to government or it can go to individual consumers. And, and what, uh, what Bill Morneau has already said is since Doug Ford doesn't want to play ball with this program, that those rebates are going to go right back into your pocket and mine. Now, that's, that's all of a sudden discretion income that we can spend on whatever we want. But that's good for the economy. True. Well, well it, it, it's certainly good for the individual household economy. But, I mean, is it, is it dissuading you and I from using carbonaceous fuel, which is what, it's, which is what the carbon tax is supposed to do? That's, that's the, the, the problem with this. This has now become, well, I mean, I'll get a check from the federal government if I support the, the carbon tax. I mean, whether I reduce carbon is beside the point. It's, it's, it, I think that there should be a direct, more direct line from uh, the tax to the behavior that it's supposed to uh, that it's supposed to cause. How do you get politicians, though, at any level of government, Steve, to to be that committed to it? Because you know as well as I do that no matter how well-meaning any government is that tries to do something like this, and and you use the British Columbia example because theirs has been in place for quite some time. Every time they put a bill forward like this, it gets watered down to the point where, like, oh, look at. You know, we, we, we all want to get reelected, so let's just cool our jets here a little bit. Well, that's that's the that's just the, that's just the thing because uh, you do have to get reelected. I'm not I'm not poo pooing. You know, I, I, it's easy for me to sit back and, and criticize what politicians are doing. They do have to get elected. They have to they have to go and they have to go to the door. I just wish that a carbon tax were tied directly to carbon emissions, and I certainly wish that the economists who are out there. Uh, um, uh, supporting the carbon tax and giving cover to the governments, to governments that are implementing it, would uh, show some CO2 reductions as a result of this thing. That's what they're not able to show. They're able to, they're, they're giving you these fancy arguments, talking about rates of increase slowing down. And like I said, we don't need rates of increase slowing down. We need reductions in, in CO2. We need reductions in the use of carbonaceous fuels where that's possible. And where it's not possible, we have to make it possible, and only technology can do this. I, I understand that, but I guess I, I'm going to play devil's advocate once again and say, is any program better than no program? Uh, well, I think that, that, uh, a pro- that a program that focuses on technology and the right kind of technology, and you know what I'm going to say, because in Ontario we achieved a, uh, a, a multi-million dollar reduction, annual reduction by replacing coal with nuclear, yep. that's, how you're going to, that's how you're going to reduce uh, um, electric electric power emissions, and that's the the, the, the problem in in about four or five of our uh, Canadian provinces. That's how they're going to do it. Not some 
uh, um, you know, quitting alcoholism by, by switching from wine to beer, which is what they're uh, planning to do by, you know, replacing coal with, with uh, slightly less heavy-emitting natural gas. You need to re- replace it with zero-emitting uh, um, uh, energy. If, um, unless a program does that, then all it is, it's just politics, politics and posture. Given the, the propensity, though, that governments have uh, at any level of any political stripe uh, to, to want to water things down to try to make it more palatable for a greater number of people. Uh, and I was talking to Professor Moffat about this yesterday when he was a guest on the program. And, and I got the sense anyway, from, and I've talked to others about this, and I know you have as well, Steve, uh, is I, I don't hear any economist or even any proponent, as a matter of fact, uh, for the federal carbon tax, saying that's it, we've got it solved, we're we're good to go. What they usually do is characterize this as this is a good start to what we need to do. Yes, that's right. It, it, but I, I I question whether it's a good start because again, I come back to BC after you know eleven years of a carbon tax, uh, we've had a uh, an alleged slowing in the rate of increase in gasoline and diesel use. Uh, that's pretty insipid, Bill. We need we need cuts. We we don't need a slowing in the rate of increase. So if that's the good start, I mean, they're not even looking at, uh, at, at demonstrable success stories where we did reduce emissions, which is the whole point of it. This is, what, this is what I find puzzling about this debate, is that the proponents of this tax are not looking at those situations. They're just looking at uh, jurisdictions that have brought in carbon taxes and said, hey, the sky didn't fall, therefore we should, that's, that's a, you know, to me, that's not a good start. That's just a, that's a, a way to kick this problem down to another government that's going to be forced to take some uh, uh, drastic action. But if, uh, and again, to your point, if a government, whether it's this government or a subsequent government, says we, we're going to have to do this incrementally, I mean, you've got to start off below with the standard that you want to meet and, and, and eventually ramp up. I don't think anybody's going to go from where we are to where we should be, because that's just too big a leap. Well, I think, uh, I, I think that we need to be a little bit more ambitious. Ontario in the 1970s, within 15 years, uh, nuclearized our electricity system. We went from coal and hydro to nuclear as the dominant source, and, and we basically shut coal down, and we only brought it back in the 1990s when we laid up some nuclear plants. Uh, this was done in 10 years. France, same thing. In the, in the, after the oil crisis, they went nuclear in their electricity, and they stayed like that ever since. Those are the, that's the quickest way to do this. I think that the sooner people recognize this, uh, the better. But the other element to this uh, that has to be factored in, of course, is is market. Uh, for instance, I mean, we had the wind government that all of a sudden, you remember the budget they put out last year, where it was all about you know, electric cars, electric cars. There were going to be rebates for buying electric cars, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was very controversial. And, and they were going to do whatever they could to try to get people in there. Uh, and we kept buying SUVs. I mean, some of them are hybrids. I mean, so, you know, it's not as if the message is totally lost on this. And I know that last year we did sell more electric cars in Ontario than we have in previous years. But still, what is it? Like 1% of the market. So when you, government can't mandate for people to change like that. I mean, there's got to be a combination of, of government policies, but at the same time, you've got to get the public to buy into it. Sure. Uh, well, the, I'm glad you brought up the electric cars. That's an excellent example, and it's an excellent example of the difficulty of this, of this challenge that we're facing. Because what they did, okay, if you, if you bring in a carbon tax to get people to use more, uh, buy more EVs, well, then why did we make electricity so expensive? Because we're, you, there's, a, there's a cutoff point where, you know, you're going to be ratcheting up a carbon tax. I think, how, how about just reduce the price of electricity, which is, which is a, another doable thing. This is something that I wish the current Ontario government would get around to because they promised a 12% uh, reduction. 
uh, we need to reduce the cost of electricity. If you reduce the cost of electricity, if, if you remove some of the market impediments that the government has deliberately put in place, uh, we would uh, we would facilitate a run to EVs. I think a lot more uh, a lot quicker than putting a tax on carbon. Well, there's and there's some other things that are going against the idea of buying those vehicles right now too. Is obviously the char- time to charge batteries, uh, the uh, yes, the length yes. of ter- you know on a trip. I mean, you know, we're in Canada. It's a lot. You know, point A to point B is a lot longer than it is in some European cities. So yes. we're yes. not there yet. But that's technology that's being developed. But your point about yeah, let's encourage uh, the the purchase of electric cars. But boy, the way the price of the hydro is still prohibitive. Isn't that a classic example of government where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing? Well, that's exactly it. We've got the same government. Listen, the, the, uh, Ford took out the cap-and-trade program. The cap-and-trade program was put in by the liberals. The liberals jacked up the price of electricity. And then, okay, the, then, then the way that we're going to address stuff like heating and transportation, which are almost all fossil fuels, is we're going to make them more expensive. How about just make the competing energy, which is electricity, which in Ontario is five times cleaner than natural gas, how about just making it less expensive. They deliberately made it more expensive. So, yeah, the right hand, either the right hand uh, knew what the left hand was doing and didn't care or it or it didn't know, <laughs> like you mentioned. Well, or the other element of that, too, is oftentimes the government says, look at my right hand, don't look at what the left hand's doing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, damned if we do, damned if we don't. I, I don't know that we've solved anything here, Steve, but I think we shed a little more light on it. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Great talking with you. Steve Applin, of course, uh, from Emission Track. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's it's bizarre. It's it's just craziness watching some of the stuff that's going on uh, with the Trump White House these last couple of days. Of course, there are so many factors, and uh, when you look at uh, the American political scene right now, clearly the, the number one thing at this point has to be the government shutdown, which is uh, going into its uh, fifth week, I guess it is now, uh, and there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. Uh, you've got the Mueller investigation, which is ongoing. You've got uh, Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's former lawyer, uh, who's going to be appearing at the Congressional Committee in just a couple of days and uh, wondering what kind of testimony that's going to be. And on and on it goes. And then you've got Rudy Giuliani, who is now the president's personal lawyer, we're told. Uh, we all know Giuliani, of course. He's a former uh, well prosecuting attorney in New York, uh, Southern District, as a matter of fact, that's making news these days, and a former mayor of New York. Uh and a guy that had, a, I think, a rather credible uh, reputation uh, as a politician, certainly as a, as a lawyer. But some of the things that he has done over the last couple of weeks since he's gone under the, the guise of, of the Trump lawyer have just got people shaking their heads. And now we're told that the president and uh, many of his allies within the White House are growing concern. As a matter of fact, we're told that uh, President Trump is just plain outraged at some of the things that Rudy Giuliani has said in media interviews over the last couple of weeks. Uh, this comes after Giuliani's interviews, which were filled with uh, misstatements and hurried, uh, well, what he called clarifications, which he'd go on TV the next day and say, I want to clarify the clarification. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Dr. Anthony Neal, who's, of course, with the Department of Political Science at uh, Buffalo State College. Anthony, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. I'm oh, glad to be with you, Bill. How do you make sense of this? And I guess the, the, the way, I'm, as I'm watching this stuff, Anthony, as I mentioned in the, in the preamble, Giuliani's a guy that's got, had a pretty stellar reputation as a district attorney. Went, he he you know, took down some of the high and mighty. Uh, we can debate his time as mayor of New York, but he did some rather progressive things. Uh, yeah. this is, that doesn't look like the same guy that we're watching on TV these days. Uh, yeah, and, and to add to that, no, at the, after 9-11, he was referred to as the nation's mayor. Yeah. Because of uh, 
whether real or not, the perception of what he did after 9-11. And yeah, it's, it's, I look at it and say, my, how the mighty have fallen in regards to his reputation and what he's doing at the uh, current time in regards to, uh, I know he's referred to as Trump's personal attorney, but uh, it's not much legal activity involved in uh, just being out as a, it's almost like a pup, uh, public relations person. Well, pretty much, isn't it? You're, you're absolutely right, because uh, what little, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, obviously when you try to get into things like this, we know a little bit about things like uh, like client uh, lawyer privilege and things of this nature, which means there are some things you just don't, you know, discuss, especially on a public forum. We've got like a television interview on the network news. Yet he doesn't seem to have any hesitation to do this, which means he's kind of blowing all that stuff out of the water. I mean, his client, which in this case is, is Donald Trump, uh, I'm sure is outraged by this because he's saying, look, I don't want this guy talking. He seems to be up there about every two days. He's either on Fox or on NBC or he's, he's doing an interview with the New York Times. He's, he seems to have this insatiable appetite to want to get in front of a camera and talk about something and then go on the next day and recant it. Well, it's it's it's, it's like you said, it's strange, and uh, seems like every time we talk, just when you think things can't get any more strange, they do get even more stranger as time goes on. But uh, initially, uh, people were pra- I mean, not praising him, but saying he was doing exactly what Trump wanted him to do, and that's obfuscate the situation and perhaps try to hold on to the base or make their base uh, seem like everything that's going on is a, definitely a witch hunt and not actually going on, but it, it's possible that he's getting caught up in his own celebrity and going rogue to a certain extent. It's possible to go rogue with Trump in the White House. <laughs> well, the, the one, I guess, that maybe is the, the cherry on top of all this was the comment he made, I guess it was on Monday when he was talking to the New York Times, and he said he was afraid that, About, that his, uh, his legacy... That on his tombstone, it was going to say, you know, Rudy Giuliani, the guy that lied for Trump. Uh, and he didn't say he wasn't lying. He says, if that's what happens, he says, I'll have to justify it with St. Peter. So <laughs> uh, it seems to be a fait accompli as far as he's concerned. Basically, it, it's uh, it's hard to figure. There's so much information, misinformation going out, and uh, the confusion that came out with the uh, BuzzFeed article. They had everyone excited for a minute. So it's it's difficult to actually say what's going on. Uh, I think as best we can do is step back and say this is just strange, and it's hard to as hard as we try to conceptualize it and try to make sense of nonsense that's going on. All at the same time, as you mentioned, that the uh, the federal shutdown is going on, and under normal circumstances, that would be the lead story with every newscast, but. Given the fact that things have become so strange and weird, the shutdown is like the, it's not the least of our worries because of the, the people who aren't getting paid, but it seems like it's not the lead story. It comes in second or third. Which begs the question, I guess, Anthony. I mean, you know, we won't want to categorize Giuliani as being a little scatterbrained about some of this stuff. Uh, or is this just a, a strategy that, the, the, you know, the art of deflection? In other words, let's take the heat off of the, the shutdown. And let's start talking about other things. And you're right. I mean, that's what seems to be grabbing the headlines. Yeah, not only the heat off the uh, shutdown, but just as you stated, to make the investigation seem even more uh, unprofessional or that it's not going to actually 
net uh, much results uh, in the situation. I, I've listened to uh, individuals try to assess, like the legal minds try to assess what's going on, and they can't quite figure out what's going on. And one one sentence is saying that uh, this is what Trump wants, and the next, as you mentioned, that Trump is upset. So for, like I stated, as best we can say, I think one thing we conclude, can conclude with certainty that this is strange. Absolutely. That I, don't, I don't believe it's uh, the best face for the United States. And not, not to mention that, we're actually uh, absent from Davos as well, uh, which is a major international concern. That, that too is getting left out of the equation. Yeah, this major economic summit that's going on in Davos, Switzerland right now, and, and all the U.S. networks are over there covering it, but there's nobody from the U.S. there. I mean, Trump decided not to go. Yeah, and uh, adds more credibility or concern about what is his actual agenda. His agenda seems to align quite well with uh, Putin's, what Putin would love for the American American agenda to be in that situation. And, well, and, and that's why you, there's so many contradictory things that are happening here at the same time, Anthony. I think that's what's causing an awful lot of the frustration. Uh, when you've got Giuliani talking about this, that, and the other thing, uh, the the stuff that's coming from Mueller, well, there isn't anything really coming from the Mueller camp at this stage. Uh, there were rumors that, you know, he might be finished by February. Now, of course, that may not happen because of some of the other news that we're hearing. Uh, but Giuliani seems to be letting stuff out. I mean, in his, his interview with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press on Sunday, he says, look, I've read all the documents and heard all the tapes. And, and that, well, that was the New Yorker. And the guy said, tapes? There are tapes? He says, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, now, is, was that a, a, a faux pas, or was that just him trying to mislead? Uh, because we know that Cohen's got some tapes, but I mean, those, I don't think Giuliani would have access to this. But it begs the question, does Mueller have some tapes that he hasn't talked about yet? Yeah, a third way to look at that, it could be just a cliche. Someone says, I you know I have all the receipts. They're basically saying that I have evidence, what have you, but not necessarily a literal tape, but basically a cliche is that I'm quite informed about what's going on is another way to look at it. Simply only adds to to the confusion about the entire situation. Well, when I heard that and saw the interview on on Sunday, I got to tell you, the first thing that came into my mind was the Watergate testimony way back when, uh, when John Dean, who was the White House counsel at that time, uh, told the uh, the committee, the Watergate committee, Sam Irvin and the, and the rest of the members of the committee, that there were tapes that Nixon was making, and and that was uh, they were said there are tapes. Are you kidding? And that that really turned that whole thing around, didn't it? And those were literal tapes. Yeah, not figurative, because as you might recall, when uh, uh, the FBI uh, director was giving his testimony, one that Trump fired. He also mentioned the uh, the I, Comey. He also mentioned the idea about tapes. He said, "I hope there are tapes, but it seems like, as far as we know at the moment, that was just conjecture of both people posturing in that in that respect, but not actual tapes." So we we don't know at this stage, and and none of this is going to happen until uh, we we get some clarification as to what's going to be in Mueller's report. But now. Uh, there's there's a great deal of concern being expressed, Anthony, that uh, even when the report is done, as, as you and I talked about a couple of months ago, uh, when Mueller's report is done, he files it with the with the Attorney General. It's not a public document. It's up to the Attorney General to decide what's going to be seen by the public or not seen by the public. Yeah, and given the person who could eventually be Attorney General, uh, his questioning seems as if uh, 
there's a very real possibility that he would uh, hold back on a lot of information. His idea is that if you can't indict a sitting president, why release all this negative information if nothing can be done about it? And and we'll never know. I guess we'd never know, will we? Because if they just say we've redacted this part here in the interest of national security, we don't know if it's national security or if it's to try to protect Donald Trump. Well, no, that's what uh, Nixon tried to pull, yeah. the executive privilege uh, on the tapes. And and another thing, I know Nixon, Nixon appointees were on the Supreme Court, and they made that ruling against him in U.S. versus Nixon. But with the concurrent configuration of the Roberts Court here and the vote that they took yesterday to allow uh, for the uh, military to continue to ban transsexuals from the uh, military. I'm not so sure that this court would rule against the president in a situation like that, unlike the Nixon court. I mean, the court that Nixon had basically appointed uh, ruled in favor of the law against the person. It seems like here, uh, particularly Kavanaugh on the court, there's an obsession with the person more so than with the law. Well, especially when you got a guy like Kavanaugh who's actually written about the fact that he didn't think the president uh, should be indicted or could be indicted. Uh, and, of course, you know, he's been confirmed he's on the court. And, and uh, those are the, the swing votes that I guess people are concerned about. Listen, I, I've got a few minutes left here, and I want to swing back for a second uh, about uh, about the shutdown and what's going to be happening, because it just doesn't look like there's any end in sight. I know that Mitch McConnell, who's the Republican leader in the Senate, uh, says he's going to introduce a bill uh, on Thursday, actually two bills on Thursday. Yeah. But essentially, it's it's the Donald Trump quote unquote uh, you know compromise, which is not a compromise at all. Uh, the the speculation I'm hearing, Anthony, is that neither one of these bills are going to pass in the Senate. That was that's my understanding as well. That uh, one would be primarily favored by the Democrats, whereas the other ones would be more favored by the Republicans and less favored by the Democrats. Um, it's it's posturing uh, once again on the part of uh, Mitch McConnell. What needs to be done is those the legislation that the House of Representatives passed simply bring it up for a vote uh, in the Senate. That that was the way government used to function. Uh, it wasn't based on whether the president says, "Oh, I don't like that, so don't let me have to vote on it," which is what Mitch McConnell is essentially doing. Uh, as I've stated in different situations, uh, we heard about voter suppression, but the Republicans have been practicing voter suppression within the Senate and the House itself, by not allowing anything to come up for a vote. It was my understanding that you let the body vote on it, and if the president doesn't like it, the president can veto it. If the body truly wants it, the body can override the president's veto. But now you can't even get a vote on legislation, which is quite pathetic. Well, and it's it's a back and forth here, isn't it, at this stage? Uh, obviously, Trump has said he wanted he's going to own this thing. Uh, I don't know that he figured it was going to go on this long, but now that it has, and and now that it's okay, we're going to try to blame the, the Democrats for this. But the reality here is the Democrats, I think, have been pretty consistent about this. Uh, and, and Trump's uh, so-called compromise that he talked about on Saturday, uh, as we saw it, apparently was only an overview. And now that they've got an actual bill in front of them, there are a number of things there that basically made these promises he made about even temporary amnesty and things like that basically impossible to achieve. So I, I don't see that he's going to get any Democratic support for it. Well, well, it, it, the, the reason for that is 
is we have to ask ourselves what did what has Trump said within the last five minutes because it changes so rapidly. He can say something at the beginning of this interview, and by the time this interview is over, we have to go back and recalibrate on what we talked about based on what the president says. And it makes it very uh, difficult to have any type of negotiations. What needs to happen is for the Republicans simply gain some backbone and act in the absence of the president. I think that could be done. Uh, legislation could be passed, and if Trump vetoes it, it could be overridden by the legislature. It's just that simple. Yes, the other party would step up. Well, and that's the whole thing. I mean, truly exercise checks and balances, separation of powers. But but it it all seems to be on on Trump's terms. In other words, you know, and and your point is well taken. I mean, because the the bill that passed in both the 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 Senate and in the House of Representatives with bipartisan support called for the reopening of of the bill, and and Trump promised he was going to sign it until Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh said, "If you do that, you're weak." So I'm, I'm, I'm yes. guessing what we're wondering right now, I mean, who's calling the shots now for the White House? Is it Rush Limbaugh or is it Donald Trump? <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, I wonder, can you scare your prime minister into <laughs> policy situations like that? Well, it's it's strange that that a right wing you know media type a Calder I guess falls into that category as well would have that much sway. But I mean, we do know and and we've learned over the last couple of years that uh, that Trump has nightly talks with uh, Sean Hannity after he does a show on Fox and uh, and on and on it goes. And Lou Dobbs apparently is in the White House on a pretty consistent basis. So this seems to be government by Fox News. And these people don't have any clue as to what it takes to govern. They're not concerned about the pain that they inflict. Sitting back on these ideological positions, simply pontificating without truly uh, understanding ramifications of what they're saying. It's not an intellectual exercise. People are actually hurting from the, the policies that they are promoting and getting this president to go along with. Well, I don't know that we ever thought in this day. I mean, we're not in a recession right now, but if you look at some of the nightly news uh, reels, uh, the video on this, food, uh, lines. Anthony, food lines of, of people, yeah. you know, these are government employees that, that, that have no money and they can't buy groceries for their families. And it's, I, I hate to think, but when you hear about people who talk about the insulin that they need and other medications that they need and their children... Uh, it's, uh, I know what Trump did for the immigrant children at the border, and now he's doing it for children here in the United States as well with yeah, this the, uh, government shutdown. The children of government uh, employees, and it's, it's, it's ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, the quote, I guess, that stands out here is uh, he was saying, look, at, uh, this, is, this is important, meaning the shutdown. It's more important than just getting a paycheck. Now, that's, that's pretty bold for a guy who's a multimillionaire or billionaire, uh, who's living in the White House, uh, who's never had to worry about a paycheck. Uh, he, and, and again, I think it just underscores that he has no idea what's going on in the real world or what he- kind of an impact it's having on people. Extremely callous, along with one of his other uh, assistants or aides, talked about uh, this is like an extended vacation for them. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's quite callous in how they're looking at the whole situation. Well, with that we can only of- hope that we can escape this... Uh, current morass without, uh, you know, a death being involved for the reason to shut down, whether some type plane accident, whether someone dies from the lack of being able to uh, get their medications. We can only hope we don't hear about one of those type stories. Yeah, so seems, seems to be a tragedy waiting to happen. Anthony, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate your perspective on this. 
Okay, I can only imagine what life would be like the next time we talk, Bill. Okay. <laughs> Take care, Doctor. Dr. Anthony Neal, of course, from uh, uh, Department of Political Science at uh, Buffalo State College. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.